The Art of Leadership Network. The definition of leadership I like the most comes from Raul Heifetz and Marty Linsky. It is leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> disappointing <laughs> your own people at a rate they can absorb. And so oh. what you realize is that none of us got into ministry to disappoint people, right? Right. I say there's a God we love and there are people we love. We're going to introduce the people we love to the God we love by building a church they will love. What could possibly be disappointing? Until you realize that to build a church for the people we love who do not know the God we love means messing with a church that people have loved a long time. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Man, we've got a timely episode today. We're going to talk about change and how to change when everything is changing. Todd Bolsinger is here for a long overdue appearance. We're going to talk about canoeing the mountains, disappointing people at a rate that they can absorb, and how to handle sabotage and the anxiety of leadership and a whole lot more. Today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy. Man, I love the Art of Leadership Academy. It's something I started two years ago. And every month, I host a live coaching call. This month, Jeff Henderson is going to join in to share actionable steps you can use in your church and to answer your questions. So if you want to get in on this month's live coaching call, join before February 13th at the Art of Leadership Academy. And today's episode is brought to you by Belay. You can start delegating today. Belay's got a free book for you called Delegate to Elevate. Just text my name, Carrie, to 55123 for your free copy. That's C-A-R-E-Y to the number 55123. Well, Todd Bolsinger is the co-founder and principal of A.E. Sloan Leadership, Inc., an executive coaching and consulting firm that works with churches, nonprofits, universities, and marketplace leaders in leading change. He is also the executive director of the Dupree Center Church Leadership Institute, a senior fellow of the Dupree Center for Leadership, and associate professor of leadership formation at Fuller Theological Seminary. Prior to his educational career, he was pastor for 27 years. He's written five books, including the Outreach Magazine Resource of the Year in Pastoral Leadership, Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. And I know a lot of you have read that book. For those of you who haven't, you're really going to enjoy this conversation because, well, we talk about how to lead change when everything is changing and you yourself as a leader are completely disoriented. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Well, every single month in the Art of Leadership Academy, I host a live coaching call. And this is an opportunity where we just tackle the most pressing topics in ministry or personal development. And I love it because I come on or a guest comes on and we teach for about 20 minutes. And then members of the Academy just fire away with their questions. It's one of my favorite hours every single month. And if you've ever wanted live access to me or a host of other leaders, this is how you get it. The call always includes actionable steps for your ministry. We leave lots of time for Q&A. And on this month's call, on February 13th, a voice that's familiar to a lot of you, if you're a podcast listener, five-time podcast guest Jeff Henderson is going to be joining to share his wisdom. Jeff was recently named by Forbes magazine as one of the 20 speakers you shouldn't miss. He has led three of North Point Ministries' churches, worked in marketing and leadership with Chick-fil-A and is currently there now and is founder of The Four Company, helping businesses, churches, and individuals grow using The Four strategy. And this month, he's going to help clear up confusion about what you should do next. So if you want in on this call or all future calls, 
Go by February 13th to the Art of Leadership Academy. And when you join, you can also get access to all of my online courses, a private online community. We have a lot of fun in there. That's theartofleadershipacademy.com. There's also a link in the description and you can check it out there. And then a question for you. How do great leaders cast the vision of a church's future while juggling all the day-to-day operational responsibilities? You ever ask that question? Well, let me let you in on a secret. They delegate. You don't have to do it all on your own to be a great leader. And our friends at Belay are actually delegation experts. The U.S.-based assistants and accounting specialists at Belay have been helping overwhelmed pastors for over a decade. And to find the support you need, just head on over to Belay and start delegating today. They've got a free ebook, Delegate to Elevate. In this ebook, you'll learn the practical tools you need to help free up your time by leading into the strengths of those around you. So to get it, just text Carrie, that's C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123 for your free copy. That's Carrie to 55123. And now, my conversation with Todd Bolsinger. All right, Todd, welcome to the podcast. This is really good to be with you, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you. And I didn't tell you this beforehand, but I have a confession to make. I feel like this is on my conscience. So your book, Canoeing the Mountains, came out when? It came out. Oh, it, was it, 20, it came out in 2015, actually, first time. It was 2015. Okay. It was. Because yeah, I yeah. released Didn't See It Coming in 2018. And yeah. all people talked about was how great Canoeing the Mountains was. And so I, I got a little bit like, do you ever hear Adam Grant and Simon Sinek talk about being worthy rivals? Yeah. Exactly. So I've exactly. just got a little bit of a confession to make that perhaps... I was a little bit jealous or a little bit like, oh, there's my worthy rival or whatever. Anyway, uh, finally read it. It's an incredible book, exceptional book. You did a great job. Same with the new one. And it's an absolute delight to have you. So with that out of the way, you ready to have a conversation? That is very kind of you because I often have people say to me, you should have a podcast like Kerry Newhoff. And I think his is great. I am not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you wrote wrote some incredible books. So, all right. Well, very nice. Very, very nice to uh, have you on the podcast. And I do want to dive into the ideas because I think you really, really helped a lot of leaders with uh, with your work. So <laughs> you start with something that seems so obvious, yet it's so hard day to day and it's so well articulated. The world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. <laughs> when you wrote this back in 2015, you had no idea what the world was going to go through. We had no idea what the world was going to go through. Here we are almost nine years later, and it's like, what? Like, um, <laughs> why is that phrase almost always true? The world behind you, the world in front of you is almost nothing like the world behind you. Well, because we were trained to recognize the world that we see. So like that 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 story is a story about the Lewis and Clark expedition they literally came upon mountains and the Mandan tribe had told them, oh, you're, you're going to face some mountains. And they said, mountains, mm-hmm. mountains, we're from Virginia. We're great at mountains. <laughs> like, like, the, like their mental model uh-huh. of the mountains were the you know, American Blue Ridge Mountains, not the Rocky Mountains. Same, same idea, totally different thing. And that's what happens is the world in front of us, we tend to, we tend to assume it's going to be more of the same. And yet it's much more disruptive every day. So this isn't a book study, but you do Uh use the analogy or the example of Lewis and Clark. Uh For those of us who barely have like, you know, 
elementary school history in the back of our mind. Can you remind us uh, some of the challenges that they encountered and having not traversed the Rockies, but driven through them and then gone across Death Valley? I remember the first time, I guess the only time Mm -hmm. actually I've been through Death Valley. I remember seeing it on the other side of the Sierra Nevada and I'm like, no wonder they call it Death Valley. Oh my gosh. Like this was, this was really hard. It's hard enough if you're in, you know, it's hard enough if you're in a car, you know, it's like, do we have enough water? Do we have enough gas? But my goodness, I mean, these people like 150, 200 years ago, it was a whole other game. So uh, explain the metaphor a little bit. Well, so the metaphor was that for the better part of 300 years, the dominant mental model of the world was all the important people are in Europe and all the things the important people in Europe want are found in really interesting raw materials in the rest of the world, spices and silks and stuff like that. They they were smart, the people in Europe, whoever could control the water route, which because it's easier to move raw material over water than over land, whoever control the water route and tax everybody else will become the most powerful nation on the world. That's it. That was the plan. 300 years of people with that mental model was all about who could control the water route. So fast forward to this fledgling United States of America, and Thomas Jefferson knows his land mass is in the middle of that water route, that all the European nations want to find a way to get across it. So the Corps of Discovery was sent by Congress to find a navigable water route that would connect the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. And that, of course, meant up the Mississippi River and across the Missouri River And boats had come from the Pacific side up what is now the Columbia River, but no one had found where they connected. So that's the assumption. And everybody had that mental model. You'd be able to find a water route that would go across. Until after 18 months of going upstream, they get to the the top of the pass that is between Montana and Idaho called the Lemhi Pass. And they look over and they see the Rocky Mountains. And again, their idea of mountains were these rolling hills that you could almost imagine carrying a canoe over, not 14,000-foot peaks that would go on for 300 miles. So the world was totally different. And at that moment, the European-dominated understanding of the globe shifted, like they were wrong, and they had to rethink the entire geography. And that led to all kinds of things, both positive and negative within our cultures. But what it demonstrated was how often we are just trapped in an old world and an old assumption that need we need to rethink if we're going to be leaders taking people forward. So to finish the story, how did they get through in the end? So they got they through. They didn't canoe ultimately. the mountains. <laughs> right. No, no. They, what, the whole answer is, if, how do you canoe mountains? And the answer is you don't. You have to drop the canoes, which is loss. And they had to learn to listen to a teenage Native American nursing mother named Sacagawea. In our 11th grade history classes, we learned her name as Sacagawea, but they wrote her name down as Sacagawea, and I'd love to give her back her name. And this, you know, think of Meriwether Lewis being tutored by Thomas Jefferson in the White House. In order to be able to discover a whole new world, he had to learn to listen to someone who he hadn't written down a single word she said because he hadn't up until then thought she was worthy of writing down. Now they have to learn to listen to her. And, and I think this is the place where the church finds itself today. We are totally disrupted. We've been trained for the past, and we have to learn to be humble enough to learn from other people, learn as we go, listen to other people, try new things, and let go 
of these canoes that we built with our bare hands that, that are part of our identity. Well, again, you wrote this in the mid-2010s. None of us saw the gut punch coming up with COVID and lockdowns. Like in our lifetime, we'd never lost access to buildings, etc. What were church leaders struggling with then when you released it? And how did we weather the crisis of the last four years, in your view? Honestly, yeah, well, so, yeah, yeah. So in, in 2015, when I wrote it, I'd been working on these issues since 2007 with, uh, you know, my mostly mainline uh, denomination. I'm kind of part of the evangelical branch of a mainline denomination, the Presbyterians. And really what it was, was the change of Christendom. Like the world, like Christianity in the West having a home court advantage, right? Home field advantage. The culture supporting Christianity. When we started to realize that culture is not going to support Christianity the same way that it did, it made it really difficult for traditional church models to survive. And so people needed to change and they needed to address those changes. The problem is up until COVID, people used to argue with me about it. There'd be people who look at me and say, we... All we need to do is go back to our roots, recover our fat past, be more conservative, be more biblical. And what happened then is in COVID, everything fell apart. Like everybody mm. got disrupted. And so what we began to realize is, you know, the single biggest challenge that when I talked to leaders was a challenge of discipleship. It was a deep challenge. It was, we were not as Christian as we thought we were when we got to a crisis. We were not as interested in loving our neighbors, and we were not as interested in sharing our faith and demonstrating our faith. We got really self-absorbed, and and we just wanted to go back to what is familiar to us, and that became the challenge. Yeah, it's funny how evangelism and discipleship are really interconnected, that the discipleship crisis is actually somehow related to our unwillingness or inability to share anything about our faith yeah. with other people. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we, we got gut punched four years ago with COVID, et cetera. Uh, what are you seeing now, almost a decade after writing Canoe the, Canoeing the Mountains? Same issues, amplified issues. You mentioned the mainline church. I think a lot of evangelicals now find themselves in the same boat. Exactly the same book. Yeah, all, Pardon all the pun. of the books. Lack of pun. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> well, all the books. I mean, all the books, including people you've you've interviewed, will tell you the same thing. We are, we are in a decline. We're in a. The West yeah. is in a crisis of decline, and that um, we are now having to grapple with the fact that uh, with, that. What I tell people is, you can't keep trying harder. That's like right. keep trying harder is like paddling a canoe when there's no water, right? Like mm-hmm. you've got to. You got to learn to train differently, and that's the the biggest challenge today. Is how do you help people who remember the glory days give up the idea that if we just go back and recapture them, we're going to be fine instead of learning our way into a future? Yeah. Um, what's wrong with the way we classically train? leaders, or increasingly, we don't. I mean, we just hire internally, right? So what's wrong with that, the way that we approach it? In our, and you work with a seminary, so. Yeah, I do. I do. Actually, I, I say I work at a seminary. Everybody who comes to the seminary, somebody told them, you're the best Christian I know. You should go pro. <laughs> and, and, and they, and they, they come to professional Christian school, and we give them a master of divinity. I mean, that sounds like a superhero, right? The problem is, is what we've trained people for a lot of the things we train people for, we need to train them for. You still need to handle the scriptures well. 
You still need to handle people's souls well. You still need to create healthy communities. You still, you know, there's still things that have to be done well. The problem is we didn't prepare people to lead change well. And I said that we're we're good at taking people through individual change, loss of a spouse, crisis. We're not good at taking communities through change or taking communities through change that we embrace intentionally because we have to change. And I think there's a an adaptation to that skill set that has to happen more and more in our training. Yeah, you know, I, I look at it this way, and it's probably why I have a job today. I went to seminary back in the day. I went in the 90s, right? So I think I graduated in 96, 97, thereabouts. But I look back on it, and I learned how to read the Bible. I learned exegesis. I learned Greek. I learned preaching. I had a great preaching prof, etc. Systematic theology, a little bit on pastoral care. No idea how to lead a board meeting. No idea how to, how to raise money. No idea how to keep up the pace week to week. No idea how to grow a church. No idea how to do outreach. None of that. It was it was so impractical, valuable, but impractical. Has that changed at all? Have you seen the educational models evolve a little bit, or uh, where are we winning? Where are we losing on that front? Well, it's beginning to change. I think I think almost every any, any institution that has done a survey of their alums would get your report. <laughs> yep. So it's beginning to change. The problem, however, is um, that one of the fit, one of the most powerful impacts quote somebody gave me was: at the moment of crisis, you do not rise the occasion; you default to your training. Um, I learned that from working as a pastor next to a Marine base, and it was a common statement they made in the Marine base. We keep training people for the old world, including our professors. Many of our professors, many, you know, I'm, I'm 59 year old professor and, and it's pretty hard not to keep wanting to go back and train people the way I was trained instead of continually acknowledging that a learned faculty is not nearly as important as a learning faculty that has the ability to keep learning as you go. Yeah. Good distinction. Um, trust is an important part of leadership, yet a lot of leaders really struggle to establish trust or to have people trust them. What are some keys to developing trust? Like thinking back on that metaphor when um, you don't really know where you're going. I mean, looking at the world ahead of us, it's not like any of us has a clear roadmap. We don't know. A bunch of mountains yeah, in the yeah. way. So, so how do you develop trust when you're not sure where you're going? Yeah. So the um, so I would say that the combination that we that I talk about is um, no one's going to follow you off the map. They're not going to follow you into uncharted territory into the unknown if they don't trust you on the map. So you start by being trustworthy in all the areas that you need to be trustworthy in. So I would tell people there's no transformation without trust. Just there is no one's going to trust you for a vulnerable act of being transformed unless they trust you, but trust is not transformation. And one of the big mistakes that a lot of leaders make is they think as long as everybody, if like, if, if I can get to the place where people trust my character and they trust my capacity and my ability, well, then we'll be fine. And the answer is you've got to be comfortable with developing trust that you then invest in transformation where just the act of taking people through that means your trust is going to go down. You have to disappoint mm-hmm. them. You have to, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, uh, 
Well, I work in this area called adaptive leadership. And adaptive leadership starts when a person looks you in the eye and says, Pastor, what are we going to do? And you, if you have any integrity, have to look them back and say, I don't know. And we're going to have to learn our way forward because no one's been here before. I've never seen this mountain before. And so we're going to learn our way forward. And so adaptive leadership starts with this notion of learning. Learn as we go and let go of the canoes, face losses, and keep moving forward. One of the DMs I get a lot and one of the things that just keeps coming up again and again when I talk to church leaders is a lot of us are people pleasers. A lot of us Mm -hmm. really enjoy being liked. And I imagine it's easy to confuse being liked with being trusted. And then Mm -hmm. when you're liked, you don't want to risk unpopularity because you had enough uh, angry messages, angry emails, angry confrontations from things you didn't do, right? Just they didn't like the way the election went. They didn't like the way you said or didn't say something. You know, we're in trouble for stuff we didn't do. Now, all of a sudden, we're in trouble for things we did do. What happens to people-pleasing pastors or people-pleasing mm-hmm. leaders in, in a time of change? Yeah. Oh, so the, the most, um, the, most in, uh, the, the definition of leadership I like the most comes from Raul Heifetz and Marty Linsky. It is leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> disappointing <laughs> your own people at a rate they can absorb. And so what you realize is that none of us got into ministry to disappoint people, right? Right. I say there's a God we love and there are people we love. We're going to introduce the people we love to the God we love by building a church they will love. What could possibly be disappointing? Until you realize that to build a church for the people we love who do not know the God we love means messing with a church that people have loved a long time. And they get disappointed. They hired you to make things better for them. What they meant was better for them without, so they wouldn't have to change. And now they're disappointed and they're disappointed at you. And so, I mean, so the entire thing we realized during COVID was the hardest thing for pastors, the single hardest thing is facing what the sabotage of your own people. Mm-hmm. The people who mm-hmm. said, lead us, we want to reach our neighbors. We want to grow. We want to be vibrant. We want a church that will be there for our children and our grandchildren. And you started doing it, and then they sabotage you. And that that's a normal part of leadership. That it's actually, Ed Friedman says you need to expect sabotage. That it's part and parcel of the leadership experience. And he says the most important, he said the most important aspect of leadership is preparing for sabotage. Most important. I said, which is why, of course, we gave a year of it in seminary, right? No, we never learned about it, right? Nope. So we are, we're trained to be, yeah, yeah. So we're trained to be people pleasers, thinking that if people are happy, we're good. And what we have to realize is anxiety makes people sabotage. So, so, so you prepare for, for the first thing you prepare for is understand that sabotage is not only normal, but sabotage is not the bad things that evil people do. Can you define it's, sabotage uh, a little more, just so we're clear yeah, in terms? Yeah, yeah, Sabotage is when the very people who are with you want the status quo more than they want transformation. It, it is the experience, to me, as I say, it's the experience that happened on the other side of the Red Sea, right after 
the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian army. And six weeks later, you can go look it up in the Bible. Six weeks yeah. later, they're saying, you know, they killed our children, but we did have leeks and onions. Maybe we should go mm-hmm. back. Six That's weeks. Sabotage. Six weeks. That's sabotage. Wow. Say it one more time. And, the definition is so good. Yeah. 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 Sabotage is where people prefer the status quo to the transformation and they resist the very transformation they're asking you to lead them in. Which is one of the reasons we don't see changed churches. Right. Oh, and I tell people every single time I talk about this, I say sabotage is not the bad things that evil people do. It is the human things that anxious people do. Anxious people want the familiar. They want to go back to what they know. They prefer the familiar to the transformation. And so they literally will prefer, they'll prefer slavery in Egypt to the transformation necessary through the wilderness to get to become a people for the promised land. And they do it. We see it over and over and over again. Um, it's just, it's just right. It's the big challenge of the cha- transformation, the leaders of change process. Good. That's uh, super helpful. I think we were talking about what you have to do to prepare for that moment, to prepare for sabotage, disappointing people. Uh, how do you do that? Well, you start by knowing that it's normal. That's the first thing you do. You start by acknowledging that it's going to happen. Uh, you you prepare yourself not to be reactive. So I say that sabotage is um, the, the developing the resilience to face resistance. The resistance of sabotage is a formation process that happens actually in the process of facing it. So you have to be prepared that we're going to face this. And then there's a formation process in the middle of it for facing it. And that really starts with your own self-reflection. It helps you pay attention to the fact that part of my problem is that I'm a people pleaser and that I need to come to grips with the fact that I want their approval even more than I want to fulfill what God's called me to do. And I've got to just acknowledge that. And then I can acknowledge I gotta that I sometimes get mad at them for not for not approving for me, you know, I, 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 um, I talk about this as having a failure of heart where I become cynical and mad and angry and disconnected because they're just doing what anxious people do and they need me to lead them through it. But I get mad at them. Um, but there's a place where Moses in numbers 11 literally goes to God and says, if you're going to leave me with these people, you can kill me now. Mm-hmm. And I think, I have never once on a Sunday morning come home and said that to my wife. You know, that's what I think I'm going to pray to God today. But I did come home a lot of times and think, you know, I could, I could sell real estate. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and so many people have, right? Right. right? So many people yeah, just bailed. Right, right. It's tough. Um, do you think part of it is like I agree? Everything requires change. One of the one of the trends I'm really studying right now is it seems like the stable church is disappearing. If you read the statistics, you're either growing or you're dying. So that idea yeah. that we can have 300 people indefinitely and everything will be fine, and I can do my five years here and move on, uh, those days are gone too. But I often found that seminary didn't attract leaders as much as it attracted chaplains and pastoral care specialists and counselors, etc. Is there a difference in profile for the kind of leader that is needed for the church, or can chaplains be turned into leaders? Like, how, how does that work? 
Yeah, I, it's interesting. I've always said, I love the way you said that because I've always said um, seminaries attracted teachers and chaplains. Like, so mm-hmm. those of us who say, hey, what do I want? I want 300 people sitting in front of me so I can open the scriptures for them. And and I got to yes. say, that's where I started. I, mm-hmm. I started as a guy who loved the scriptures and loved teaching the scriptures. And then, then there's the chaplains. There are people who just love this care of souls. And they're amazing. And what's interesting is even today in most seminaries, chaplaincies, um, degrees are, are increasing. Pastoral degrees are decreasing because pastoring more and more requires leading a community of people through change, which means we're going to have to have churches where people demonstrate that and grow people up and reframe what pastoral leadership looks like. Um, and it's, I'll give you an example of this. Um, I ended up in an argument on the internet with uh, one of the former editors of Christianity Today who said, you know, we don't need leaders, we need shepherds. And mm-hmm. I wrote back and said, yeah, but in the Old Testament, shepherds were the military leaders. That was the metaphor in the Old Testament. The problem wasn't being a leader. The problem is if you were a shepherd who didn't protect the sheep. And God says, I'm going to give them shepherds after my own heart, which means shepherds who will protect and lead the sheep, not eat the sheep or sacrifice the sheep. It was a quality of leadership. And even today, you see crises. I see many people who are promoting books right now that are kind of anti-leadership. And I keep saying the point isn't to get rid of leadership. The point is to get rid of bad leadership and reframe what Jesus-like leadership would look like. Hmm. Can you turn, like you make a distinction between managers and leaders. What's the difference? And then can a manager become mm-hmm. a leader? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my friend Scott Cormo describes uh, the best des- description I know of management, which is stewardship. It is taking pick care of the things entrusted to your care. And I think I'm a good believer that good stewards and good managers are really valuable. And any of us who followed a bad one, knows that they're really valuable. But what management is about, even the folks from Harvard will tell you, is about managing complexity. It's making things that are complex, simple, and effective. Leadership is about managing change. And that's really, to me, I carry at the heart of it, which is we never prepared spiritual leaders to understand their job was to be able to take people faithfully through change. And that's why my entire company and my entire life is built around helping faith leaders thrive as change leaders. That's, that's what we're about because, and that requires teaching a different skill set. So I do. So let's break down that. that Go ahead. Yeah. I believe that people can be trained as leaders. It's a skill set. It's like training people to be good preachers or good teachers. It's a skill set. Some are more gifted than others. Some are more naturally gifted. But you can train it. I mean, it's understanding that leadership is a skill set set that requires wisdom and capacity that has to be taught to people and trained to people for people. How do you do that? How do you train leaders if that's not their natural mm-hmm. bent? You train them in real time in the midst of facing leadership challenges. That's actually what you, it's actually the statistics are really clear that it's almost impossible to form leaders prior to them taking on the responsibility for leadership. Leaders are formed actually in the leading. So it's real-time training in the midst of real-time um, challenges that is necessary to do so. You can prepare them with some concepts, but you, 
you've got to be able to do that. And what are, what are the specific skills you would look for? I mean, obviously you've written books about it, but if you had a list of yeah, three to yeah. five that you're like, hey, yeah. this is what you need to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all is a clarity of mission. I understand what I'm called to lead and the transformation necessary, right? So what it, it means is it's not just my job to create a community. It's a community with a purpose. There's a So there's a sense of missional intent that is really important at the for, for leaders. A leader, that's why we work really hard at helping people say, it's not just enough to say, I want my church to survive. Or I talked to a seminary president once and I said, what is your vision for the seminary? He said, my only vision is that our school survives. The answer is survive for what? There has to be a missional intention. And the second is you have to prepare people that transformation means loss. Um, it means dropping the canoes picking up your cross, dropping the nets. <laughs> it's like it's loss. It's it's always about loss. And what Heifetz and Linsky say is people don't resist change, they resist loss. So I believe taking people, having people leverage the emotional intelligence and the empathy that they've learned in personal pastoral care to take people through personal losses is exactly what has to then be transformed to take or communities and churches through corporate losses that they embrace. And then you need the resilience to face the resistance. So it's missional clarity, taking people through loss, dropping the canoes, and keeping going towards your missional purpose in face of resistance are the, are the big skill sets. Let's talk about resistance and resilience. That seems to be a very difficult thing these days. It's funny because, you know, I think about it, here we are, you know, four years on the other side of COVID and I don't hear business leaders talking about it much anymore. I don't hear, but in the church, it just seems to be this massive hangover that has been a defining moment for us years later where we're not emotionally recovered. We're for the most part, not congregationally recovered, where we're still a little bit gun shy at times. Um, what are some keys to resilience and handling the resistance? Once bitten, twice shy. That's what I'm still picking up. And it's weird because no one in business is. They're not worried about the next lockdown. They're not worried. They're, they, that is in the dust. It's in the rearview mirror. And business leaders involved in the church listening to this would agree with that. But your church leaders, they're still struggling. Yeah, yeah. So my, uh, there's lots of books that were written on resilience, especially even in the church, uh, pastoral resilience. Yeah. A lot of it was around self-care. It was around, mm -hmm. we didn't have good boundaries. We got burned out. We didn't know how to care for each other. All good things. All really, really good yeah. things. The best definition of resilience I know, though, comes from a guy named Andrew Zoli, who talked about nations that needed to be resilient. How, do you, how does Rwanda come back from genocide? How, does, how do you come back from an ecological disaster? And his answer is that resilience is the capacity to maintain core purpose and integrity in the face of dramatically changed circumstances. Maintain core purpose and integrity. So think about that. Mm -hmm. What is threatened when we have a crisis? Our core purpose. We stop doing the thing we are called to do to survive. And what gets, what gets threatened? Our integrity, our values. We start compromising in order to survive. And so what happens very quickly is people lose their purpose and they lose 
their values. And I believe that when you lose your purpose and you lose your values, you lose your heart for the work. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happened today, I, I saw this, I saw somebody on Facebook posted, you know, what is the best book on leadership you've ever read? And 50 people or more responded. And everyone except two books were all about the inner life and the boundaries of a leader. They were all the kind of books. I love them. I've read them all. But they were all about stuff like Henry Nouwen's In the Name of Jesus, which is kind of an mm. anti-leadership book, right? Um, they were not about how to lead better so that we can actually survive this stuff and that we can thrive through it. I think we resist the call to leadership and be, because it wasn't what we signed up for, really. We signed up to be teachers and chaplains to do pastoral care and to love people. Hmm. You know, that kind of resonates. I got yanked into ministry through a pretty supernatural call experience for me. And also in the Presbyterian tradition, I went to a Presbyterian seminary. And I really don't have a pastoral profile. I'm an Enneagram 8. It takes me longer to feel things. I was okay with the resistance. I was okay with disappointing people. I mean, yeah, was I really? No, I'm not really. But like, hey, this is part of the game, guys. This is what we signed up for. Like, this is this is what happens. And otherwise, you know, the writing's on the wall. These churches are toast in five years. And I would lead that way. That seems to be a very, I'm not saying I did it well. I'm not saying I did it well at all. But that seems to be a very rare skill set in the church these days. Is it is it partly temperance? Is it partly temperament, I guess, is the word I'm looking for? Is it partly temperament? Is it partly disposition? And, you know, I, I, tend, I tend to be, I do have a good heart, but, like, I can let stuff roll in a way a lot of other people can't. They would feel it. They would lose sleep. I lose sleep over people issues internally. So, if, you know, I got a staff member that's going sideways. I got to have a hard conversation. But if, like, someone's mad at me, I'm like, oh, I'll live, you know. That's just me. I, I don't know. What, 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 are, what are the temperaments and dispositions you need? And do people need to toughen up? Because it is. It is hard. And I've, I lived off Numbers 11 at times where I'm like, all right, today I feel like kill me now. But then God, Moses gets better. And then God comes along and he goes, well, okay, if you're not going to kill all these people, I will. Like it's between one day God has a bad day and the next day Moses has a bad day. And I'm like, yeah, that's leadership, man. That's 100% leadership. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's so interesting about it, I, I'm an Enneagram 8 also. So I oh, I go. tease people. I tease people that, you know, I I don't have to kick down every door, just the ones that are closed. <laughs> I, 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 kick it, I kick it down before I check the door handle. Um, yeah. But so it's natural for me to think that way. And, 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 it, but, and what I had to learn was that I could go a long way with my own energy and my drive and my sense of vision, but I couldn't take people along on the journey. Sooner or later, I'd be out there by myself. So I had to learn a different way of leadership that required me to say, I've got to take people through a transformation. And that's leadership is about that transformation that I have to take people through, which required me to have to then also learn that it wasn't just about my being tough. It was about my being empathic toward how other people needed to be transformed also. That became the real challenge. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a good point. So you had to learn empathy. I had to learn empathy. And thank goodness, emotional and empathy, emotional intelligence and empathy are skills that can be learned. I have learned them. You're making the argument that people who might be more pastorally inclined 
could also learn the skills of leadership. Is that fair? And if so, anything else on that? Yeah, I really am in, of the school that leadership can be learned. That leadership is a is a something. It is a wisdom and a skill set. It can be learned. The problem is is that we have some once in a generation talents out there who are famous and and we think, oh, that's what a leader looks like. And um, and I want to say that's 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 I can't I can't I can't help you become one of them. I can help you be faithful to lead your people through transformation so they can be a faithful witness in your community. That is what we work on. So the rub to me, and this is anecdotal, you probably have a lot more research on this as a professor, but, you know, in the many conversations I've had, um, what I'm picking up is that the chief block is for people who are very sensitive, who feel it, who feel called to hold the hand of people who, who genuinely love their congregation and don't want to hurt them. Hurt being, I'm going to do something you don't like. Almost like giving your kid a needle, you know, not to get into controversial stuff, but just like kids got to go to the doctor. That's not going to be a fun visit. It's not going to, I don't care what your kid is. Your child is not going to have a good time at the doctor, particularly if they have to perform some kind of procedure on them, but you do it because you're a loving parent, et cetera. So what are the skills necessary for that emotionally sensitive, heartfelt leader who really doesn't want to hurt people, who doesn't like to disappoint people? What do they need to do? The same way I had to learn empathy, you had to learn empathic skills. Uh, what do they have to learn? How can, or is it even possible? Well, I do think it's possible. Um, what I've seen is for folks who start with a pastoral um, identity that is built around caring for people, they have to recognize that there is nothing caring about leaving people in places of despair. Mm. That if you do nothing... Mm. Hmm. If you do nothing, this thing, this community you invested will die. It will. Like, I mean, that's that's not because anybody did anything wrong. There's just a life cycle to these things. They will die. It is despairing to give your life to something that will go away. So to give yourself to something that is bigger than yourself means it requires you to keep being transformed also in very particular ways. And that's why all my doctoral students, the whole second year of a three-year cohort is about their own transformation. And them understanding how they need to be transformed to lead change and how they need to have a set of spiritual practices and, and pra- leadership practices that they need to live into. It's, it's really about your, I say everybody will be changed starting with the leader. And that's, that's everybody. That's not just any ramates like you and me. That's everybody. We're all going to have to go through some kind of transformation. How do you counsel them to get through the inevitable disappointment and the personal hurt and frustration? I'm, uh, pretty close with a guy who really does have a pastoral heart and like our conversation always returns to, but these people left or these people are disappointed in me. And I'm like, yeah, you'll get over it. Like, I don't know. What do you, what do you do to train? What, what do you do to, to, to help people yeah, through yeah. that inevitable disappointment so they don't turn back? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't do bad. <laughs> yeah, okay. Bad advice. Don't, don't hire yeah. me as a consultant. All right. Yeah. Exactly. Say, you don't tell them you'll get over it. Actually, what you do uh-huh. is it's interesting. What you do is you say to people, you, you actually help them get in touch with um, their, their own disappointment. So it starts with your own self-reflection. I, I really believe that leadership starts with the, your experience of feeling vulnerable as if I know I'm not doing a good job and I have to learn. 
Um, my, my wife is an artist. She's a professional artist. And she says that every single one of her paintings start, goes through what she calls her grandma stage. And what she means by that is her grandmother was like a recreational painter who went to the YMCA and took classes. And, you know, there's, there's sweet pictures, but they're not art. She said, even mm. the best things I do have a stage that feels as if it's never going to be a genuinely beautiful piece. It's gonna, it goes to an ugly stage. For me, that ugly stage will be different than somebody else. That sense of they're just, hey, I have to go through how vulnerable it feels to take people through loss and change. And then you've got to recognize that that vulnerability will kick up in me and I'll want to stop the process. So I talk a lot about the vulnerability of leadership is what's, is what you have to be able to go through. And it's different for different people, but it's, 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 it's not something that you can go, you can avoid. It just feels vulnerable. It feels like that's not going to work or I'm not going to survive it. Or, I mean, I, I had one of my clients say to me, Todd, I think I could learn this adaptive change. I just don't know if I can survive it. And okay, let's talk about what you need to survive and thrive through it. Yeah. So extend that conversation. What would that look like? You can abstractify yes. it a little bit. That's what we're Yeah, doing. yeah. So so what it often meant was it the first thing that happens is to realize most of us carry a mental model that to lead I have to do this by myself. Mm. I'm not the expert. I need to fake it till I make it, which is almost always wrong. Instead of acknowledging that I need help. So I always tell people, you know, every leader needs at least three types of people in their life. They need partners. So I'm not, I'm a partner is a person who's as committed to the mission as, as I am. I say my partners are more committed to the mission than they are to me. If I stop doing it, they'd keep doing it. That's what a good partner is. I also need friends. Friends are the people who are committed to me more than a mission. They are the people who look at me and say, Hey Todd, I get, heard you got a new book out. And I go, I do. You want to read it? And they go, no, <laughs> I'm not interested in your books. Like, I'm, I'm just I want to know if you're actually free to hang out. Right. I'm just your right. friend. So you need partners and friends. And you also need mentors. And for me, mentors is the big category for therapists and spiritual directors and coaches and mentors. Mentors are the people that you can show up vulnerably and they will hold you in that moment of vulnerability to help you become the person that God wants you to be to fulfill your mission. And you need all three of those. So no matter, so when I'm working with someone or we're working with someone, we don't work so much on the techniques as we work on the support you need to continue to be vulnerable and face your own transformation so that you can actually continue through the process of, of your own change to take people with you in that change process. You also say resilience comes from a rhythm of leading and of not leading. So <laughs> what, does, what does not leading look like? Yeah, yeah. So um, there are these moments when if leadership is taking people through transformation and it's and they're going to resist it, you need some things in your life that people are not resisting, right? Like, like I would say, in order to disappoint people, there's got to be some people in my life who are happy with me, <laughs> like, like right, even me, right. it's an Enneagram 8. So, you know, so I'll tell you, like, one of the things I know is um, I have a joy out of teaching and preaching the scriptures. I do. And I'm pretty, pretty good at it. I'm trained in it. So anytime I get asked to preach or teach, it's a joy. It, it is not leading. It's my, it's actually relying on my technical competence that builds trust and it gets me good feedback. 
um, in my personal life, to be honest, one of the things is my wife, the professional artist, likes working into the evening. So I make her dinner every night. I just wow. cook every night. Well, I, kids are gone. I got grown kids. I can make dinner. And you know what happens, Carrie, is every night she's happy with me. <laughs> like, mm. like, So I might spend my whole day coaching people who are frustrated, but I end my day with my wife saying, thank you. Thank you so much for making me dinner. So you need some things in your life, not only not leading from the standpoint of I need rest and I need restoration, but I also need places of my life where I'm not getting resistance. And you can't have a continual, you can't have resistance all the time. So for me, it is, I need time with my family. I need time in nature and I need time doing some stuff I'm good at. I just need some stuff Mm. doing some time doing some stuff I'm good at. Yeah. You know, that's been a recurrent theme. I'm thinking of Annie F. Downs, Steve Cuss, and others, even Craig Rochelle. You know, we've had them on the podcast. Like, Craig's like, all right, when I'm not working, I'm going to learn. He's he's a super challenge guy. So he'll be like, I'm going to get my pilot's license. I'm going to learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So he does that. Annie F. Downs is like, what's a hobby? Like, do you have a hobby? I think that's really important. I've had to develop that on the other side of burnout. But what I hear you saying, and I just want to make sure I got this right, because I think this is big, something positive, something energetic, something that you're good at, or at least you don't get any resistance to, you're not keeping score. Um, one of the challenges I've had, and I'd love to reflect on this a little bit more, is I'm a, become a huge fan of silence, a huge fan of quiet and downtime and rest. But the problem that I have in those moments is if it's a challenging season with one thing or another, my mind doesn't shut off. So I need something to distract. Like if you're angry about something, I find it's better to put a movie on than go for a walk. Because if you're going for a walk, you're just going to think about why you're angry. And sometimes it works out and you're like, okay, I'm not angry anymore. Sometimes it just gets worse. There's the principle, I think they psychologists call it distraction, where if you just distract yourself for a little while by reading a book, watching a movie, going out with a friend or something and having a totally different conversation, your brain leaves that and away you go. Is that kind of what you're talking about too? Because if it's only silence and I'm reading and contemplating, like I just mold these things over and ruminate. Well, it's I, actually, I think that's, I always think of it. Since you said distraction, I wasn't thinking of that, but that is yeah. some of what I'm doing is I'm letting my brain go to someplace else. So for right. me, uh, it's it's almost always some activity outside. So when I'm mm. fly fishing or skiing or hiking, um, if I get my body moving, then my brain calms down. So so part of what I need is I need to be doing things that are like even when I'm cooking, my I'm chopping and I'm doing stuff like getting my body doing something else allows me to allow this thing that I'm ruminating on to recede to the back where it calms down enough for me to think about it clearly. And one of the things to pay attention to is if I'm anxious, I'm usually not thinking clearly. Um, Trisha Taylor says anxiety makes you stupid. And I think to pay attention to that, I'm, I'm so anxious, I won't think about this well. And, and psychologists tell us anxiety also makes you rigid. If I'm anxious, I will go back to an old rigid form rather than be open to the possibilities of new things. So I need things um, the way you used use your word distracting. I need some things to actually let me get some space away from this so yeah. I can come back to it in a calmer place. 
Yeah. That's good. Hey, when you think about the future. Oh yeah. Keep going. Well, as I say, one of the reasons I fly fish is that the entire world revolves on something so small that I can't do anything else except pay attention to it. And if I, if my phone rings in my pocket, I won't catch that trout. But if I'm paying attention to it, I get a burst of endorphins and a joy for being in a beautiful place. And so it's very Zen-like, if you will. It becomes very focused. And it's amazing how the things I've been worried about just go back and recede into the back, or then I can come back to them with new energy. When you think about leading into the future, what are some of the challenges you see on the horizon for leaders? It's interesting. Um, you and I were both at a conference where they were wanted to talk about the future, and I said, yeah. "I'm not good at that. You should talk to Carrie Newhoff." <laughs> like, <laughs> like, 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 like I, I didn't even know you at the time, and I think of you as the guy I turn to to say, "What do you think the future looks like?" Um, uh, I, I, you know, they used to say Wayne Gretzky always said, "Skate to where the puck is going," and I think the world now has 14 pucks, and so, ooh. so I. I'm not good at predicting. What I know is we're going to prototype our way forward. We're going to predict, we're going to not predict, but we're going to experiment. So I think the future, if I can give anything, I say the future is going to be built by small experiments that people are going to learn from that are going to give us things we didn't even imagine. And it's going to be, we're going to move it forward the more we focus on pain points rather than vision. Um, Jim Collins even said, great leadership is not a stirring vision. It's someone trying to solve a real problem in the world. So the more the church focuses on real problems of real people and seeks to learn as we go, I think the future is going to look like that. And I think other things are going to just fall apart. And I don't know what that looks like, but I think that's the path. Well, and some of that goes back to qualities and characteristics that we've hinted at, right? Like I would think agility and resilience are going to be really important. I was having that conversation with my staff today. It's like we're doing some pivots on some things. There's last minute things. And it's like, hey, this is what we do. And if it means I need to blow apart my schedule for the next three months and cancel a bunch of stuff, uh, I'll do it. What other skills do you think are going to be really critical for leaders to develop? And thank goodness leadership can be learned. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Curiosity is a huge one. Just getting good at asking questions. Um, one in my church, I, a guy I had was a consultant of like a Fortune 100 company, and he was so wise. We'd always come to him and go, "What do you think?" And he would say, "I think there's a good question in here somewhere, and I don't know what it is yet." It was, it was almost like this That's Zen great. thing he said, right? Right. Yeah. But think about that. Like, like until I'm clear on the question I want to explore, I'm probably not there. So getting to become a better question asker, um, mm-hmm. to be a better explorer, to be, to be more curious rather than certain. Um, I always say I want clarity of mission and I want curiosity rather than certainty. And I think those things are going to move us forward. Those are going to be part of the skill set. It really is about learning as you go. And, and I do think it's about loss, which requires both empathy, say from people like you and me, but it also just, it requires courage from some of our friends, some of our other friends. I think loss requires both empathy and courage. So curiosity, empathy, courage, um, clarity of mission, openness 
to different possibilities of how do we how we get there. I think those are going to be some of the traits we're going to have to see. Todd, any question we haven't tackled that you would like to tackle before we wrap up? I'm not sure. This has been fun. Um, I, I think the main thing I'd want to say, just to say it again, maybe put a line that it is, I think the future is more and more collaborative. I think, you know, Lewis and Clark are almost known as one word, Lewis and Clark. You right. know, you can be in, like, there's there's Lewiston, Idaho, that people don't know is named after him. And I did a presentation in Clark County, Kentucky, and didn't know it was named after that Clark. But Lewis and Clark ended up also needing Chicago And so many of my students and many places I am consulting, we are working on shared collaborative forms of leadership that look much more like the New Testament and Paul's writings than like the models of the church we've had in the last 150 years or so. And I would like to see more and more leaders be able to say, I need to be part of a team or a partnership rather than I need to be the one. I have a hunch the future is going to require more collaboration. So if you don't mind, I'd like to drill down on that a little bit because I hear it a lot. And I, I, I think you're right. The future is going to be experimental, but I haven't seen that work at scale yet. There's a couple of co-lead pastors, actually, I'll be there. There's there's a church, Preston Trail in Dallas, that have had co-lead pastors. Often now you see the breaking up of the teaching, vision, lead, mm-hmm. slash executive role. Is that what you're talking about, or are you talking about something yeah. different? Okay. Well, I'm talking about that as a, that as a start. If you just acknowledge, think yeah. about, like, I'm working with one larger church where, I mean, to be have the skill set to preach to a few thousand people every week is pretty huge. But to yeah. also expect that person, that person's also going to be able to create a healthy environment for a staff of a couple hundred, like that's, so then you realize, okay, that's the big one. What about the small one? Okay. How about in a smaller church where you have um, a, the need for an older person who can help bring along some of the, some of the older members who are anxious and a younger leader who has the capacity to just in, engage a different generation. Like, like I think we're going to see more and more collaborative forms of leadership. And um, and I see this particularly when women step into leadership, uh, all of a sudden it's like it seems to facilitate more collaborative forms of leadership. And I just want us right. to think about that as something. I think it's not been at scale yet because I think we're, it's pretty new to, well, we're, we're used to defaulting back to our old models, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you have any thoughts on flat leadership? And what I mean by that, and, and I've seen little experiments um, on, on very small organizations. And actually, uh, what's the book I'm listening to? It's The Founder's Dilemma. I don't know that you've ever read that mm-hmm. one, but interesting mm-hmm. book. And it uses case studies. They're a little bit dated from the business world, but where there's there's true equality in leadership. In other words, we have three CEOs. We have two lead pastors. We have uh, five pastors who are just the executive team and there's no distinction. Any thoughts on that kind of egalitarian leadership model? Well, what it requires then is to rework the expectations for how we make decisions. So one mm-hmm. of one of the groups I worked with, they they actually decided they wanted a collaborative model. And what they didn't have worked out in their polity is, so what do you do with ties? 
And, exactly. and that's where people do, right? And then people default back to, well, someone yeah. has to be in charge. And I kept saying, well, okay, I know that there are people who believe that's true about marriage. I've been married for 35 years. It's weird how my wife and I have been able to work out every disagreement without me having mm-hmm. to ever say, I, I get the, the veto, right? It's true. just, a, it's a, it's a, it's a skill set and it requires you not only to have a different leadership model, but in one sense, a whole different organizational model that takes, that learns as you go. So you're going to have, we're going to have to develop that that capacity of organizational learning to go alongside it. Yeah. Have you seen that work at scale yet in a large church or larger organization? I've seen it work I have small. One I just have, of, yeah. I'm working with one church right now that's right in the middle of it. They're right in the middle okay. of it. And they're it's beautiful to watch them do it. They they suffered from a senior pastor who was the star and the narcissist and the problem. And they recovered with a much more healthy shared model. But there, it is a learning curve. They are actually having to learn how to do that together, and that's a it's a very capable church. But they're having to learn how to do it, and so seeing more of it um, beginning to happen. Um, a, a large church in the Midwest, the, they uh, elevated an associate pastor to senior pastor who was a woman, and she said, "I will only do this if I can do this collaborating with someone else." And right now, they literally went and found a partner for her, and the two of them are beginning to lead this church. And it, so I'm, I have some examples, but they're few still because I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's still new to us. Well, it's developing along the way, and some of it may actually be a reaction to the top-down male leadership that a lot of us are rebelling against, and then others might just be, "Hey, we want to try something collegial and new." But yeah, it raises a lot of questions, but a lot of opportunity there. Well. Todd, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Your most recent books, you have a new one called Tempered Resilience and of course, Canoeing the Mountains. People can get those anywhere books are sold. Uh, Where can they connect with you online these days? So the easiest way to connect with me is through... um is on in social media, Todd Bolsinger or Todd Bowl. It's just the easiest thing to get a hold yeah. of me. But um, my my, it's that's the if you find that it takes me takes you to everything else. Great, awesome, Todd. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Thank you, Carrie. It was really fun. Really, really fun. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. And if you want more, we've got show notes for you over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 629. We also have transcripts for you. And make sure you check out the offer from our sponsors. Man, I'd love to have you in the Art of Leadership Academy. Actually, we got well over 1,700, almost 1,800 leaders in the Academy. And you know what? A lot of them said, I heard about it on the podcast. If you want to be one who has access to me and actually almost 2,000 other leaders who are just crushing it and trying to figure it out in leadership, check it out. And you can get in on this month's live coaching call with my special guest and good friend, Jeff Henderson, by February 13th, if you join at theartofleadershipacademy.com. And then Belay wants to help you delegate to elevate. In this ebook, you're going to learn the skills that really set great leaders apart from other leaders. Text CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. That's CAREY to 55123 to get started today. Well, we got a killer lineup coming up for this podcast. You know, there's a lot of you who listen who don't subscribe yet. And that would be the easiest thing you could do. Just hit subscribe. And then if you are enjoying this episode, maybe you could share it with a friend. Man, when we get the word out, we get to bring you the best guests. And let me tell you who's coming up. We have Adam Hamilton on the next episode. Also coming up, Jamie Kern Lima, Craig Grishel. Cal Newport is back. So excited for that. Guess who else is coming back? Will Gadara. 
Very pumped for that. Willie and Corey Robertson. Oh my goodness, do we have a great conversation. George Camel and a whole lot more. So one last thing, because you listen to the end, to start transforming your preaching, why don't you do what over 10,000 leaders have done so far and download the Preaching Cheat Sheet. You can go to preachingcheatsheet.com to get your copy for free. We hear from people all the time who use it every single week. And what it is, it's a little test of whether your sermon's going to land or not. And I just run you through 10 questions, and those 10 questions will help you go, oh, I need to work on this part, or no, I think, I think I'm ready. Okay, so check it out. Go to preachingcheatsheet.com to download your free copy. Link is also found in the episode description. And I just want to thank you so much for listening. Hey, I love doing this with you. I'm going to be on the road a lot. Uh, I am in, um, well, all over the place, actually, this year, and a lot of international. So if you're in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, at the Global Leadership Summit, I'd love to talk to you. And then, of course, back to the usual places all across the United States for the rest of the year. But really enjoy meeting podcast listeners. Thank you so much, everybody. I appreciate you and what you're doing. And I just want you to know I'm on your side. And I hope the podcast episode today has helped you identify and perhaps even break a growth barrier you're facing.